this morning we're going to read, first of all, from the book of Hebrews, uh, beginning at chapter 7, verse 18. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without an oath, but Jesus became a priest with an oath when God said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Now, there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. And now we move on to 1 John, chapter 1, beginning at verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. My dear children, I write this to you that so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defence, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. This week on Twitter, I came across a hashtag called explain a film pop plot badly. Now, in honor of last night's quiz, I thought we would begin with a very quick quiz. Now, fear not, you're not gonna be scored. There's no winners or losers. It's just for you to play in your own homes while you're still on mute. But there are some great film summaries in here. I'm gonna read you a summary and I want to see if you can guess what the film is. So the first one is this, group spends nine hours returning jewellery. It's Lord of the Rings. <laughs> Second one, deadbeat dad attempts to recruit estranged son to run the family business. It is, of course, Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> and then thirdly, underdog doesn't know when to stop making movies. Rocky. <laughs> 
Now, the thing that makes these summaries funny is that on one level, they're actually accurate. The Lord of the Rings is about a group of people returning a ring to the place where it was made. Star Wars does involve Darth Vader trying to recruit his son, Luke, to join him on the dark side. And there is an argument to be made by some, certainly not by me, that eight Rocky films is a little excessive. But that said, these are three of my favourite groups of movies. And whilst there is truth in these descriptions, it's only a part of the truth. It's been massively oversimplified and it's missing tons of important information. I wonder whether we do the same thing with our understanding of the Christian faith sometimes. The central message of the Christian faith is that we are not saved by what we do, but by what Jesus has done for us. Gospel summaries usually emphasise that in the past, Jesus lived a perfect life and then died on a cross so that those who would repent and trust in him could be forgiven. They also point to the future when Jesus will return to make everything perfect. Now, this is accurate, but it's missing crucial information. What is Jesus doing now? Christianity is often described as a relationship, but if I'm perfectly honest, Sometimes that's not how I feel. I think that's because I've oversimplified the gospel. I've boiled it down to what Jesus has done and what he will do. I've reduced the gospel to this neat equation. Now, it may be satisfying for my mind, but it doesn't feel like a relationship. And why would it? You can't have a relationship with an equation. So this morning, we're going to spend some time thinking about what the person, Jesus Christ, is doing now. Not just what he's done already or what he will do in the future, but what he's doing right now. We're going to focus on two key verses to do that. Firstly, we'll look at Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, where Jesus is described as our intercessor. Then we're going to look at 1 John 2, verse 1, where he is described as our advocate. After exploring these descriptions, we'll have a quick look at what this both does and does not mean. So let's begin with our passage in Hebrews. Hebrews was a letter written to Jewish people who had become Christians, but who were considering turning back to their old way of life. The author goes to great lengths to show them that Jesus supersedes their old way of life in every single way. In chapter 7, he is showing how Jesus is a better high priest than any who had gone before him. In the Old Testament, the high priest symbolically stood between God and his people. He was the one who represented the people before God. Their main role was to bring animal sacrifices before God to atone for the sins of the people. Now, atone is a Bible word, which means to make amends for or to pay for. The idea is that because God is just, he cannot let sins go unpunished. But because he is merciful, he will allow that punishment to fall on an animal rather than upon his people. So the priest would offer sacrifices on behalf of the people to atone for their sins. Now, the thing is, the author identifies three main problems with the former high priests. So firstly, he points out that as humans, they died So their position was a temporary one. Verse 23 says, now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. Secondly, the sacrifice they offered didn't provide a permanent solution. 
The death of an animal was not enough to deal with human sin. So as verse 27 shows us, they needed to offer sacrifices day after day because animal sacrifices were insufficient. Thirdly, they themselves were sinful. In verse 27, we see the high priest had to offer sacrifices first for their own sins and then for the sins of the people. So a portion of his sacrifice was taken up dealing with his own sin. Now, the writer shows us that Jesus had none of these problems. Verse 24 reminds us that he lives forever. So his office is permanent and not temporary. He also offered the perfect sacrifice. Jesus offered himself. Look at how he's described in verse 26. Holy, blameless, pure, set apart. It was a sacrifice so great that as verse 27 says, he sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. Now, verse 27 very much emphasises what Jesus has done in the past. But arguably, the central verse of this passage switches the focus from the past to the present, to what Jesus, the better high priest, is doing today. Look at verse 25. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. Jesus saves his people not solely based on what he has done in the past, but because of what he continues to do today. At this very moment, the resurrected Christ is in heaven, interceding for us before the Father. He saves us not only because of what he's already done, but because of what he continues to do. Now, when I first began to consider this, it did confuse me a little. Didn't Jesus say on the cross, it is finished? But if he still needs to intercede for me, does that mean that actually it's not finished? Well, it's really important to see that um, although these look like competing ideas of a finished work and an ongoing work, the Bible holds them together perfectly. You see, on the cross, Jesus did achieve salvation for his people. But through intercession, he applies what he has already achieved. Let me just say that again. By intercession, Jesus applies to his people the finished work he achieved for them on the cross, which was the forgiveness of sins. The thing is, because we continue to sin every day, we need him to apply that saving work to us every day, which is why the author to Hebrews emphasises he lives to intercede for them. He stands before the Father, constantly pleading our case based upon what he has done for us. Now, if our salvation was based only on what Jesus had done in the past, then we could reduce it to a neat formula. But knowing that right now Christ is interceding for his people, it makes it profoundly personal. He didn't love us on the cross and then just leave us to it. He continues to demonstrate that love for us day by day. He takes great delight in taking his finished work and applying it to our lives. He does this by continually turning the father's face away from our sin and toward his perfect obedience and perfect sacrifice. He says again and again, I've paid for that. 
it's wonderful and humbling to reflect on the truth that when Jesus ascended into heaven, he didn't just shout down to his disciples, I've done my part. Now, good luck over to you. I'll see you when you get up here. Instead, he actively continues to love his people. He defends us from the accusations of the devil. He both perfects our prayers and he prays for us. When you're struggling, it's really encouraging to know that someone is praying for you. Well, if you're a Christian, then Jesus himself prays for you all of the time. And he prays all the things that we would pray if we knew all that he knows. He loves to take the hearts of his people and connect them to the father's heart. All this is what leads the writer of Hebrews to say that Jesus saves completely or as other translations put it, to the uttermost. Uttermost is perhaps a richer word than completely because it not only denotes complete, but also ongoing. Because he intercedes for us, we are saved completely forever. Is it possible to be any more saved? No, you can't add anything to something which is forever complete. If you ask a child, have you tidied your room? The answer yes can mean a very wide variety of things. If you ask my children that question, yes usually means I've hidden two or three items under my bed, but the rest of the stuff looks pretty much like it did before. Now imagine they were able to say to us, yes, I've cleaned my room to the uttermost. I mean, it would be impossible because they would have to clean it completely forever. They would have to clean it so perfectly that it couldn't be any cleaner whatsoever. They would have to go over every square inch of that bedroom with a microscope, removing any foreign body and then keep up that level of cleanliness forever. That's the level of completeness that we are talking about here. And that's the level of completeness that Jesus gives to his people for salvation. A salvation so complete that it cannot be added to. And this verse is very clear. This complete salvation is the result of Jesus interceding for us. He constantly upholds us in prayers. He takes our weak and feeble prayers and perfects them before the Father. Maybe like me, you don't feel like you're very good at praying. You hear other people pray and they're both theologically rich and heartfelt. I often just feel like I'm not capable of that type of prayer. But the beauty of Jesus interceding for us is he knows what we are trying to say. And more than that, he knows what we should be saying. So he says it for us. If you're a Christian, then right now you have a representative before God in heaven, a representative who actively continues to love you every single day. The second verse, which Sandy read for us so helpfully, was from 1 John. And we're going to look at chapter 2, verse 1, where it says, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Now, there are a lot of similarities between Jesus as our advocate and Jesus as our intercessor. But there's also a couple of important distinctions. Firstly, an intercessor is someone who stands between two parties. 
However, an advocate is someone who steps out of that middle neutral ground and joins one of the parties. Jesus joins his people. This means that he is not only over us, he is next to us. He stands with us. The second thing is that Hebrews 7.25 told us that Jesus always lives to intercede for us. It's something he's constantly doing. However, advocacy is a role that Jesus takes on as and when the need arises. And John tells us that that need arises when we sin. What's the sin that you struggle with and would be horrified if anybody else found out? Maybe it's to do with your internet search history or perhaps an overdependence upon drugs or alcohol. Maybe it's a constant negative inner critical voice or a love of money or a fiery temper. Well, whatever it is, we need to hear that in our sin, not after it, Jesus steps to our side and acts as our advocate before the Father. He doesn't overlook sin or make out that it's not a big deal. In fact, he knows firsthand the consequences of sin. Because on the cross, he bore the punishment of sin, not his own sin, but the sins of the people. He doesn't want us to sin, but when we do, he is ready to step to our side and advocate on our behalf. We have a, a saviour who loves us and is drawn to us in our sin. The more we realise this, the more we can pursue a relationship and not one that's just based upon being good enough, but one where we are shown grace every single time that we sin. When we pray for forgiveness, we have Jesus standing next to us, reminding the Father that we are his, that he has paid for our punishment. And he doesn't do it begrudgingly. He does it because he loves to glorify his Father by perfectly displaying God's love and justice together. This means that we don't have to represent ourselves. We don't have to make promises that will improve or that will make up somehow for what we've done. We're able to come to the Father in full confidence and we're able to say, I have no defence. I am guilty, but I'm with Jesus. More than that, I am in Jesus and by faith I'm united to him and all that he has is mine. Simultaneously, Jesus simply says, they are mine. I've paid for their sin. Now, before considering some of the implications of what this means, I want to address a falsehood that can arise from this picture of Jesus's intercessor and advocate. It can conjure up a picture of a loving Jesus representing us before a cold and distant father. There is a tendency to think of the father as, an, as angry and just and the son as loving and forgiving. But the Bible teaches that both the son and the father are loving and just in perfect measure. The salvation plan that we see throughout the Bible was initiated by the father. Ephesians 1 verse 5, speaking of the father, says, in love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. The plan of salvation was born from an overflow of love from the father's heart. It was his pleasure. 
We see this again in perhaps the most famous verse in the Bible. In John chapter 3, verse 16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Yes, Jesus is our intercessor and our advocate, but it was God the Father who sent him. The Father delights to hear the defence of the Son because he sees the Son's glory displayed as justice and mercy perfectly meet. Jesus, as our intercessor and our advocate, reflects the love of both the Son and of the Father. So if that's what it doesn't mean, the obvious question remains, what does it mean? Or as a preacher would say, what's the application? Well, the first and greatest application is this. We should ponder these truths and we should enjoy them. We should enjoy God. We should allow these truths to connect with our emotions. Yes, God wants your obedience. He wants changed lives. But more than that, he wants you to know how much he loves you. He wants you to experience that love and to enjoy it. Now, as British people, this next sentence might make you feel a little uneasy. But my main application point is to allow these truths to sweep you away. I want you to bathe in them, to enjoy them. Imagine an eternity with a God who loves you and saves you to the uttermost. His love is not only reserved for when, uh, when, you're, when you've finally been transformed and glorified in the age to come, but now in our sin and in our failure, we have a, a God whose heart goes out to us today just as much as it did the day that he was nailed to a cross to pay for our sin. We have a God who didn't just love us in the past, but continues to love us today as he continues to apply what he's already achieved. So firstly, enjoy God. The second application is to know that you can't add anything to being saved to the uttermost. Now, when we repent and believe, our behaviour should change. Real faith bears fruit. But it's so important to see that this fruit is the result of salvation, not something that contributes to it. Now, I know this in theory, but in practice, it's often not reflected in how I act or how I feel. On a good day, when I've read my Bible, when I've prayed, I've even resisted temptation. On those days, I feel like I'm saved to the uttermost. But what about a bad day where I've been too busy to read my Bible or pray? I've given in to temptation without even struggling. I've been in a bad mood and I snapped at my kids and the negative thoughts in my head are overwhelming. By the end of one of those days, I feel ashamed of myself. The thought of praying doesn't bring comfort, but shame. So I put it off because I feel so unworthy. I know that God is forgiving, but I feel like he's going to run out of patience with me. It feels like my salvation is hanging by a thread and I'm one bad decision from losing it altogether. Well, can you remember what 1 John 2 verse 1 said? Because it doesn't say Jesus is willing to represent those who have sorted their lives out, who have more good days than bad days. No, it says if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. 
Remember, an advocate is not one who stands in the middle of two parties, but stands with one party in our sin, not after it, not when we've sorted ourselves out. Jesus steps towards us, meets us in our sin and represents us before the Father. And he doesn't step in begrudgingly. Instead, he steps in with the same sacrificial love that carried him to the cross. And he says, they're mine. They're with me. Don't look at their sin. Look at my sacrifice. As the author of the fantastic but gentle and lowly, Dane Ortland says, when we choose to sin, we forsake our true identity as a child of God. We invite misery into our lives and we displease our heavenly father. But our saviour does not forsake us. These are the very moments when his heart erupts on our behalf in renewed advocacy in heaven with a resounding defence that silences all accusations. Our sin does not push our saviour from us. It draws him closer. Think of the relationship between a parent and a child. The parent loves their child because they are their child. There is a paternal instinct that brings forth love. But think how the parent feels towards a child when the child is gravely ill. Even if somehow the child brought the illness upon themselves, the parent's love would not be reduced. It is drawn out of them all the more. They wish the child hadn't brought this upon themselves and they hate the disease. But seeing the child suffering causes their heart to swell all the more. In the same way, God's love is not diminished when we are under the burden of sin, even though we are responsible for our condition. Instead, sin draws God's heart to his children all the more. Understanding this should lead us to two things. Firstly, back to rejoicing again. But secondly, it should lead us to want to be like our saviour. The more we see the beauty of his heart, the more we should want to reflect it in the way we live, striving for holiness. Not because we can contribute towards our uttermost salvation, but because we've seen how beautiful his holiness is. God's gracious heart is not a license to sin. It's a motivation to be holy because after all, he redeemed us to be like him, not to continue in our sin. Christian, take heart in the fact that although we are to the uttermost sinners, we have a to the uttermost saviour. Today and every day, let's stand in his love, enjoy that love and allow it to transform us more and more into his likeness.